This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're joined in the studio by Raga Justin, an investigative reporter for the Times Union, who recently dove into a child custody case in the North Country. Her reporting highlights concerns about the operation of the St. Lawrence County Department of Social Services, while also raising questions about state oversight of child welfare decisions. And she's going to talk with us about both elements of her story. Thanks for joining us, Raga, and nice work on the story. Thank you. So your story revolves around the experience of Dorothy Spears, a Hudson Valley resident who moved to Tennessee a few years ago, where she lives now with her husband, two sons, a daughter-in-law, and five grandkids. You report that in 2020, she learned that her third son, who still lives in New York State, upstate New York specifically, was going to have a kid, which raised some concerns for her. Can you explain what her concerns were at the time and why she volunteered to become uh, the guardian of her future grandchild? Yeah, I think the couple in question had some issues. Um, this is her son. They had been estranged for uh, a couple years before that when she had moved down to Tennessee. He had decided to stay back, and he had some mental health problems. He's been diagnosed bipolar, and he had his struggles, right, with his girlfriend. They had they were allegations of domestic violence, um, not necessarily physical, but more they would get into these loud screaming matches and the cops had been called on occasion and she had her own issues as well. Um, she had also been known to the department, right? She had had an, a, a first child taken away by the social services department. Um, so she was already quote unquote in the system. Knowing that when her son told her that his girlfriend was pregnant, believe they had some conversations about, can you take care of this kid? And to that, her son said, maybe we can't. There seems to be some issues with us right now. I don't think we'd be great parents. And so she said, that's fine. She has two other sons. She has joint custody of other grandchildren. And she said, we will take this child and move to Tennessee with it. Um, And that was the plan. Both of them agreed. So why didn't that plan come to fruition? Well, that's the million-dollar question. When DSS, when Department of Social Services, got involved... And this is for St. Lawrence County? For St. Lawrence County specifically. That is when it seems like the problem started. Because when you take the child out of the family situation and you involve DSS and then you involve family court, mm-hmm. it becomes what it turned out to be for Dottie, a logistical nightmare to try to get a child back because there's all these hoops that you have to jump through. And those hoops wouldn't have been there, you know, if the original agreement had been had been honored. But from DSS's point, I mean, they didn't know about that agreement. They had nothing to do with that. So once they thought that the child was at risk, they their prerogative was to take the child away. You know, they, they technically have that power. To Dottie, who's just a normal person caught up in that system, she's like, why, why wouldn't they listen to me? You know, I'm telling them we had this verbal agreement. Verbal agreements don't necessarily always hold up in court. So thinking back to January 2021 when the child was born, who ended up caring for this new kid? The child was taken away um, two days after it was born. The mom, dad, baby had all been in the hospital for two days recovering. Um, The morning of January 15th, 2021, social service employees come in and they say, we're taking your child away. They're not actually required to give an explanation. This is a statewide um, under OCFS regulations. They do have to be made aware. Parents have to be made aware within a certain period of time why the child was taken away. 
but it's up to the individual caseworkers who come to the hospital in this case and say, we're taking the child. There's been some allegations or we have had reason to be concerned. We're going to take the child away. And so they do that and immediately they place the baby because it's you know, an infant. They place him with an approved foster home. And that foster home, as it turns out, was a family called the Reeds, Jamie and Jason Reed. And Jamie Reed had been an employee with the Department of Social Services, actually, for the past 20 years. And is that a unique course of action in St. Lawrence County to have someone who is a county employee who's at least tangentially linked to the initial findings uh, that end up putting a kid into foster home, having these people ending up being foster parents? Is this unique for St. Lawrence County? Yes and no. No, because at the time, there were about five other DSS employees, including the now former DSS staff attorney, Mm -hmm. who was also a registered foster parent. And um, it's a handful of people. I mean, there's about 300 employees at this this, uh, department, as I understand it. But out of those, about five or six, um, I think confirmed five, but who knows how many throughout the years have been registered foster parents. And there's actually two ways to be registered. You can be registered through the county or you can be registered through a private agency. Private agencies pay more. So if you're a DSS employee and you're wanting to avoid, you know, looking like you're you're in it, that you're able to sort of game the system, um, you register through the county itself, right? And you, you get paid the sort of minimum governmental rate versus that sort of private private rate that you can. Well, then thinking about St. Lawrence County and its Department of Social Services more broadly, have they come under criticism for either this recurring practice or or other decisions that that they make? Yes, because it's Child Protective Services and there's no winning. What's come up as I've talked to a lot of people about this this specific county is that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. I mean, you're going to get in trouble, which they have, they've come under fire for taking kids away too early, too soon, too many times. And they've also come under fire for not doing it quick enough. Um, I believe a couple of years ago, two children actually died at the hands of a family that had been the subject of investigations before. So there's always a line that you have to walk if you're a child protective services caseworker, right? And sometimes you make the wrong decision. Well, for listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Times Union investigative reporter Raga Justin about her examination of the St. Lawrence County Department of Social Services. And I want to take things up a level to where we are here at the state capitol and talk about the state oversight of child welfare decisions made by counties in New York. Are there guide rails that are supposed to be in place to govern situations like what was happening with Dorothy Spears and her family? Or is this a real gray area where counties have a a lot of flexibility and authority over the decisions that they make? The Office of um, Child and Family Services, Children and Family Services, it operates in a pretty decentralized regional way. There are regional offices based at every major hub of the state, but each county is basically left on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, it figures out, you know, when it's going to go in and remove kids. It decides when and how to investigate um, calls, uh, reports of abuses, uh, abuse and neglect. 
Um, but the state does have oversight, and it does provide these regulations overarchingly. It doesn't, though, have any guidelines that I've been able to find, um, and their office hasn't been able to provide me with any guidelines on this specific case of employees of the county, Department of Social Services, also fostering children. Uh, as far as I can tell, no such guideline exists. So they have no rules, just to be clear, on employees in a county ending up taking care of kids who might be under their department's jurisdiction one way or another. They don't have rules saying, yes, you can do this, and here's what it should look like, or no, you can't do this, and here's why. Again, as far as I can tell, they, they don't, no. Now, you say as far as you can tell, when you put these questions to state spokespeople, because I imagine you're not getting the actual employees from OCFS who actually live and breathe this stuff, what do the spokespeople have to say for themselves? Do they give you a clear-cut answers, or are they kind of, again, in that gray area? They're in the gray area. They link back to a general um, guidebook for what it takes to be a foster parent and the steps you have to go through to be a foster parent, but nowhere in that resource handbook is there anything ever said about also being an employee of a DSS? So I imagine that an argument could be made that people who end up working for a county DSS office are people who are altruistic, they want to give back to their community, and that these are the exact type of people that you want to serve as foster parents. So in the course of reporting this story, did you find people who are defending not just the example of St. Lawrence County employees becoming foster parents, but in this specific case, the, the Reed family taking on the guardianship and fostering uh, Dorothy Spears' grandkid. Absolutely. There are children who need help, right? And you can argue um, about whether it's in the best interest of a, a child to ever take it out of its biological home and put it with people who are, for all intents and purposes, strangers. Mm -hmm. But those people are in it for the work, right? I mean, they see a problem, they see a lack, and they fill it. Um, and keep in mind, I mean, we, we do everywhere. This is not a New York-specific problem. This is across the country. There is a dearth of foster care parents, and there's a lot of kids in foster care. Um, the last thing you want is a child that has to be surrendered to the state and, you know, has to be paid for to be put up in a hotel room with a caseworker because there's no family setting for that child to go into. So people, you know, will defend themselves as foster parents and people will defend foster parents in general because it's, it's a difficult job. Um, but there are other people to do it other than people who are county employees. And so some of the advocates I've spoken to have said, look, we're not saying that an employee of a county government, of a county department of social service um, can never be a foster parent. But what if they were foster parents for a certain type of child, one who's about to age out of the system? This kid was an infant, right? I mean, he, in foster care terms, it's a pretty desirable child because they're young and it's easier in a lot of ways to take care of an infant than it is to take care of a 16-year-old. So the argument there is, well, if you're that desperate to foster, if you are you know, willing to step up, um, step up for some of those, those other kids, those older kids who are about to age out. Well, after a quick break, we'll have more with Times Union investigative reporter Raga Justin.
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Well, for listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation with Times Union investigative reporter Raga Justin about her examination of a child custody case in St. Lawrence County and considering what it means for the state's foster care system more broadly. So we've been talking about a St. Lawrence County employee and this incident where they took guardianship, uh, became the foster parents of a, a child back in 2021. And you mentioned how this was not a unique phenomenon in St. Lawrence County with other county employees taking on similar duties uh, back in time. What is the policy now in St. Lawrence County? Have they continued this practice or have they responded to some of the fervor surrounding the case of Dorothy Spears's grandkid? Yes, they have responded. The county actually hired a new DSS commissioner in 2022, I believe, spring of 2022, around the time that this fervor, as you say, was reaching a peak. The legislature had gotten involved. Dorothy Spears, as well as other parents who had had gripes with the department, had been really, really loud um, at that local and county level. Um, And so the new commissioner, Joseph Sieber, comes in and he says, look, we're going to effective immediately. We're going to end this practice. It's a bad look. When I spoke to him, he said it was a bad look and I acknowledged that. I wasn't here for when that policy was around or when this was actually going down. I had really nothing to do with it. But one of my first steps as new commissioner is going to be to ban that practice. So he put an end to it. Jamie Reed, though, had been reassigned or she had stepped down and taken another position in the county about a month before that policy came out, ending the practice. Another element of your story that caught my attention is the length in which this drama has taken. We're talking in October of 2023, and it's about a child who was born more than two years ago. Can you talk about some of the factors that have contributed to the long delay in getting a resolution? Yeah, I think the big one is whatever is going on with family court in the area. This case has been, at this point, adjudicated by five different family court judges. And there's just been this string of recusals and, you know, one one of them retired and punted it to the next guy. And the next guy recused himself and the next person recused themselves. And, you know, there's been cases of the Department of Social Services attorney being a co-judge with one of the judges who was assigned to the case. And so she had to recuse herself as well. You know, when you talk to people about the situation, there's this kind of, what? I didn't know that that was happening. I mean, delays like this are unusual. Delays in the court system in New York, I don't think are. Right. But five judges in two years is highly unusual. And what are the reasons behind that? We don't really know. I think it's it's a combination of different things. One of them being um, it's a rural county. It's hard to attract and retain top legal talent in places like that, especially, you know, it's, it's an older system. A lot of those judges are aging out. And you've got a lot of people in the system. It becomes overwhelmed pretty easily. And some people say there's also, we're still dealing with COVID backlogs as well. So, I mean, it's a variety of different issues. And in any case, it's not a good system uh, for Dottie Spears particularly. 
And is there a reason to believe that the experience that we're highlighting in St. Lawrence County is unique to St. Lawrence County? Or is there reason to believe that this is a story that likely takes place in some form or another around the state? If I had to bet on it, I would say it's probably the latter. A family law clinic attorney I spoke to said that there are a lot of cases that go through these kind of torturous delays and twists and turns and judges will just step off a case and punt it to the next, you know, six months down the line. And there's all these gaps in the system and people fall through them. But it's very rare, I think, that families or people who are involved are as vocal about it as as uh, Dottie, Dorothy has been. Um, she also had documentation from the first moment, from the first day that her grandson was taken away. And she's, she's a woman on a mission. And that crusade has gotten this media attention, I think, because of how passionate she is about this. That's not to say that other people who are involved in the system aren't, but it's very difficult to to be involved in in family court case. And it's um, it requires a lot of effort to then go outside and say, look, people need to, to care about this. People need to pay attention. Well, how did this story get onto your radar here at the Capitol? This might be a cop-out answer, but Dorothy reached out to our esteemed editor, Casey Seiler, and had a conversation with him. And he said, wow, this is kind of nuts. And he kicked it to me and he said, take a look. And I took a look. And what was the process of reporting something like this out? Because it is an emotional story. It is a story where there are a lot of different points of view, often with some level of validity to them. So was that a a challenge in reporting something like this out? Yes. I think, first of all, you're dealing with like hundreds of pages of court records Um, I had not known a lot of these court terms beforehand. I was pretty unfamiliar. So that was in and of itself a lot. And like you said, there's a big emotional component to this. And so you try to not pick a side going into a story, right? Um, But in this case, Dorothy Spears is positioning herself as the protagonist. And it's hard to, to step back and say, who is right? Who is wrong? Is there such a thing as right and wrong in this situation? Isn't it just about the children? Which is what the Reeds and the Reeds attorney will argue. They're making this out to be a big problem, you know, a, a, a problem with the system, but it should be just about the child. And I mean, there's there's truth to, to that. Um, I went, I drove up to Canton a couple of weeks ago to sit in on um, part one of the custody trial. I was able to meet Dorothy Spears in person. I was also able to meet the Reeds in person. And what I took away from it was that everyone was just trying to do their best, you know. Um, a couple people joked along the way that the, the problem here was that too many people wanted this child. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Sometimes a kid just isn't wanted. And at least in this, um, there's a lot of people who are really invested in him and his well-being. And where do things stand right now as we talk in early October? The custody case is still ongoing, the custody trial. Um, you know, this grandmother lives in Tennessee. It's a big part of this. So she has had to come up. Um, she came up in September. She came up again, I think this past week, she was there for part two. The judge moved to to set the next hearing for November. So she'll be back up here in November, all out of 
her own pocket. She's, she's paying this out of pocket. So she spent a lot of money on this. Um, and we'll see. We don't really know. It's, they're calling in people. They're interviewing folks. Um, they're trying to figure out what's the, the right decision for this child. And for you, what's the next angle to this story, if any, that you want to pursue? Is it examining the state regulations or the dearth of state regulations? Is there some sort of legislative response that you want to examine here at the Capitol? What comes next? Yeah, I think all of those. Uh, I think there's a lot of flaws and gaps and just sort of lack of clarification that the story has highlighted. Um, And I think whether that's family court, whether that's on OCFS, um, in between, around, whatever, yes, I think all of it is something that is worth taking a look at, not just by me, but by all all the other journalists out there too. I mean, this really affects people's lives. Um, Somebody who I was speaking to said the same thing, and she said this is something that we don't think about because it feels so abstract. I mean, what's a court delay? And then you get down to it, and this is what a court delay is. This is what five judges in two years is, and this is what a CPS worker who doesn't necessarily understand the best decision for a child. Um, That's what this case has turned out to be. Well, we've been speaking with Times Union investigative reporter Raga Justin. I highly recommend that anyone interested in state government keep an eye on her and her reporting. Raga, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org.